Welcome to the Valley Point Podcast. Valley Point Church is a faith community located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. Our mission is pointing people to real relationships and real significance. This week continues our series, The Story. Enjoy and thanks for listening. Appreciate Michelle sharing that and helping us to focus on the person of Jesus, which is what we have been doing for the past few weeks here at Valley Point. And that theme of considering the person of Jesus, who is he? We're going to continue with that today. To get us thinking, though, I want to ask this question. And the question is, if you knew the time of your death, how would you spend your last few minutes? If you knew when you were going to die, how would you spend your remaining days? Now, that's not a question we like thinking about, but if we were to ask and answer that, I think it would reveal a lot about who we are and what we value. It really would. As we have been walking through the story, which is the series we have been in here for several weeks now, we're in a mini-series of sorts right now focusing on the person of Jesus. Who is this man? And what did he say? And then what did he do? And based on what he said and based on his actions, what does that mean for all of us? And I hope, I sincerely hope, as we have been walking through this, that if you have never met Jesus before, that your eyes are wide open and bright with who he is and what he can do for you. Or perhaps this has just been a great time of getting reacquainted with Jesus. But back to the question. If you knew the time of your death, how would you spend your last few moments? Well, when you dig into the life of Jesus, we know this about him. He knew when he was going to die. He came with a single mission, and that was to pay for the sins of the world, to pay for my sins, to pay for your sins. And so he knew his purpose in coming. He knew why he was here. He knew when he was going to die. And so when you begin to look into the life of Jesus, there is a lot we can learn from him based on what he said and did in those closing moments. And so today, I just want to look at four scenes, four scenes that take us into the final days and into the final hours of the life of Jesus, okay? Here's our upper story statement for today. And keep in mind, the upper story is the big idea of what God is doing. And our upper story statement for today is that Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the once for all sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the Redeemer. We're going to look at that word. But in addition to that, he is the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins, for all sin, and this is really good news for us. So the basic idea or meaning of the word redeem, it means to pay a deliverance price. If you redeem something, you are paying a price for it to be delivered. In Scripture, redemption refers to God's ransoming of believers through the death of Jesus on the cross. 
That's what it means when we think about it in Bible terms. And so consider this. Who is Jesus? This is what we've been contemplating. And this is what we've been asking for several weeks. How can we describe him? How can we put words together that give a picture of who Jesus is? Well, Jesus is the one who paid my ransom price. That's Jesus. He is the one who delivered me. So, upper story. Jesus is the one who redeems. He is the once for all sacrifice for sin. Let's jump into the lower story now. And these are the actual historical events that are taking place on earth. And I already said it, but I want to walk through four scenes in the final days of the life of Jesus. And what did he do? What did he say in those moments when he knew what was coming? We can't forget about that. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew all of the pain that he would endure. He knew how brutal all of that would be. So what did Jesus do in these final moments? Did he turn inward or did he begin to focus on the people around him? So let's walk through these four different scenes. Here's scene number one. What we discover is that he abandoned all pride and washed the feet of his disciples. So we come into the final hours of the life of Jesus, and he just abandons pride, and all of a sudden, feet enter the picture here. Now, I want to sidebar for a moment, because I want to be honest with you. I want to be transparent and real, and I think you would expect that from me. And so I have something that I feel I really need to share with you as we walk through this. And here's what I need to share. Feet are not attractive, Right? Feet are kind of disgusting, aren't they? Now, I know some of you are going to take offense with me because you pamper your feet and you paint them and you do other things with your feet. But when you look at feet, they are not attractive. They're really not. They're a necessary part of the body, but not attractive. And I would argue perhaps the greatest part of winter is that everybody's feet are covered. (laughs) But we're coming into spring and summer soon, and so toes will begin to appear. I did not know this, but my wife wore sandals today, so she's ruining my story because her feet actually are beautiful. I would say that. But everybody else, yeah. Everybody else, feet are not attractive. So, last summer, Tanya and I had the chance to spend a week in Cancun, and we had a wonderful time. And One of the days that we were there, we actually went out and we were doing some sightseeing and we did some shopping and we went to a mall and as we turned a corner in the mall and entered into a store, there was something happening there that's actually hard to describe, but I'm going to do my best. There was a small tank of water and in the tank were hundreds, if not thousands of blood-sucking fish And what people were doing is they were paying money. I kid you not, people were lined up and they were paying good money to put their feet into the tank and to have these blood-sucking fish eat the dead skin off of their feet. That's what was happening. And people are sitting there saying, this is wonderful and amazing. And I looked at Tanya and said, we need to get back to Philly. Because nothing weird ever happens here, right? So feet, feet 
are not attractive. I don't care what you do to them, how much you pamper them, how much you paint them. If you put them in tanks where fish do whatever it is that they're doing, feet just really are not that attractive. And we get into the final days of Jesus, and all of a sudden, here we are talking about feet. John chapter 13. Jesus is gathered with his followers, and he starts the process of not thinking about himself in these final hours leading up to his death. He begins to wash their feet. Now let's put this into their culture because that's what we have to do as we walk through scripture. What does that actually mean for them? Because we might have an idea of what it means, but that's not fair to the text. We've got to figure out what does that actually mean for them? Well, in this culture, roads were very dusty and dirty and filled with animals and poop and all kinds of other nastiness And everybody walked around with open-toed sandals. And so you can imagine that their feet would get dirty from the dust and from everything that they were stepping in as they traveled along these roads. That's just what would happen. And so when people would enter into a home, it was very important for them when they began to eat to wash your hands and wash your... Yeah, you got to wash your feet because you... Man, you stepped into something over there, and we're going to have to take care of that before we eat. Now, in this culture, it was also common for the lowest-ranking person in the home to be the one washing feet. It wasn't the owner of the house. It wasn't the master or whatever title you could attach to these individuals. It was the lowest-ranking person, and it was their job to get on the ground and to gather all of the necessary items in order to wash these nasty, disgusting feet so that the meal could take place. Well, that brings us to Jesus, the Messiah, right? We talked about that last week. This is not the lowest ranking person in the room. This is the Son of God. It's God with flesh on. And here he is assuming the lowest ranking position. And he begins the process of washing the nasty, disgusting feet of his followers. Which, when you take that a step further, is kind of remarkable. Because he was washing the feet of those in just a few moments who would bail on him in his greatest hour of need. Those that he had spent time with, that he taught, that he ate with, that he loved. They're about to walk away in his deep hour of pain. And yet he washes their feet. In addition to that, there's somebody in the room who would deny ever even knowing him. Jesus washes feet. In addition to that, there's somebody in the room who will betray him and sell him out for money. And here's the Son of God, the most important person in the room, getting very low and in all humility, washing the feet of the betrayer, the denier, and all of those who would walk away. He chose on his own to embrace humility. And then he says this after the event in John chapter 13. I love this verse. After all of that, 
this is happening and there's all of this discussion and they're watching Jesus and they're saying, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing that because this is for a low-ranking person. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to do it. And then he says this in chapter 13, verse 15. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So I've given you an example. And I don't think he was saying there that you got to go out and wash everybody's feet. That's how it played out in this culture. It probably means something a little bit different for us, like let's be the lowest ranking person in every room where we ever may exist. And let's take on the selfless attitude of Christ. Scene number one, the Son of God, Messiah, on his hands and knees, washing feet. Quite a picture. Well, here's scene number two. We have this great moment where Jesus continues the conversation that he is having with his disciples, and he shares something very memorable with them. And so let's look into this conversation after the whole foot thing, we have Jesus talking in chapter 14 and verse 1, and he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, I want to pause there for a moment because that word troubled there, you should highlight that or circle it or at least keep that in your mind because here's what it means. He's looking at them, knowing what is coming for him, and they have a concept of what may happen, but they don't get it all. They don't understand everything that he would endure. And so he looks out and he has this meaningful conversation where he's not focusing on his own pain and what's coming, but he looks at them and he says, here's what I want for you. And I know you're going to walk away and you're going to deny and you're going to betray, but here's what I want. Don't let your hearts be troubled. That word troubled means distressed or disturbed, or thrown into confusion. And so as I'm spending these final moments with you as my followers, I don't want you to be distressed, or disturbed, or thrown into confusion at all. Instead, here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust in God, and trust also in me. Quite phenomenal. Here's Jesus focusing on their peace, their comfort, and their clarity. I want this for you. Remember, Jesus knows what is coming. He knows the hour of his death and everything that means and all of the pain that will be thrown on him. But instead, he looks out at these followers and he tells them, look, I don't want you to be troubled. Don't be distressed or thrown into confusion. You trust in God and you trust also in me. And then he says this, In verse 26, but when the Father sends the advocate, my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything that I have told you. So in context here, what he's saying is, don't be thrown into confusion, don't be distressed, don't be disturbed. Trust in God, trust also in me. And here's why you can do that. Because I am sending an advocate. I'm sending someone who will teach you and remind you of all things. I'm about to die. I'm about to ascend and go back to heaven. I will not be here, but I'm sending someone for you who will remind you of all of these things. There's going to be a new sheriff in town. 
Verse 27, he continues to explain that by saying, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so don't be troubled. Same word there. Don't be distressed or disturbed or thrown into confusion. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be troubled or afraid. Here's Jesus just abandoning all pride and focusing on his followers more than himself. And again, we have to constantly remind ourselves, Jesus knows what is coming. He sees it all. And yet he's washing feet. He's being the lowest ranking person in that room. And now he's looking out and trying to provide peace and clarity and comfort for his followers. What about scene number three? Well, here we discover that Jesus prays for his followers. As if it's not enough that he comforts them and he washes their feet. Before his betrayal and arrest and trial and torture and eventual death, he actually looks out and prays for his followers and he says some remarkable things to them. But in praying for his followers, he also takes some time to pray for all of us which is quite remarkable. Jesus, even then, thinking about us. Here's what we find in John chapter 17. If you fast forward a couple of chapters, verse 9 says, My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now, I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world. But I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. And that's talking about us. Anyone who has believed. Here's Jesus in John chapter 17 praying for us. Again, the final moments of Jesus. The final hours, he's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. And I don't know if the selflessness of Jesus was ever more apparent than right here. Again, with everything that was crashing in on him, he thinks about others. Scene number four. What we find here is that Jesus offers himself. That's a really important statement. When you look into Scripture... It tells us that nobody took his life. But Jesus actually offered himself as the sacrificial lamb. And he did that out of his love and compassion for all of us. Nobody took it from him. Nobody ripped his life away from him. He offered himself. And what follows is that Jesus is betrayed and arrested. And when you turn into chapter 18 and then 19, the misery for Jesus begins after these sweet moments that he had with his followers. He is washing their feet. He is providing comfort and clarity for them. He is praying for them and praying for us. And then everything gets crazy. He offered himself. Now, the importance of this perfect sacrifice. And that's what Jesus was. He was the perfect sacrifice, the sinless son of God. 
the importance of this perfect sacrifice cannot be overstated because from the time the law of Moses was given, the process of atoning and paying for sin and getting clean was temporary. We talked about Moses and the giving of the law way back when we started our series. If you remember that, God gave the law to Moses and said, here's how I want my people to act. And if they follow these rules and if they abide by this, blessing will come. If they refuse to obey this, then they will have punishment. And so God's people were constantly on this cycle of blessing and punishment and then blessing and punishment. And it just happened over and over and over again. And doesn't this look and sound like our story as well sometimes? Yeah, we're exactly the same way. Well, as part of the giving of the law... God said, there's a way that you can atone for sin. There's a way that you can be clean. And it's through all of these sacrifices that I want you to do. And when God established that, it was always seen as temporary. At some point, I'm going to do away with that. And I'm going to replace it with something a whole lot better. And so when we think about the Old Testament sacrificial system... It was a temporary remedy to cleanse people of their sin. Temporary. A better way is coming. And along comes Jesus. He just changes everything. Along comes Jesus, the perfect sacrificial lamb. No flaw in him at all. And he is the once for all sacrifice for sin. He does away with the old way and initiates something new. He is the once for all remedy. And I love the beautiful words found in Hebrews chapter 10 that kind of unpack this for us. Here's what we read in verse 1. The old system under the law of Moses was only a shadow. It was a dim preview of the good things to come not the good things themselves. That's not to say that the old system was not good. It was, but just a preview. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year. Then he said, look... I have come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's our phrase that is so beautiful. Once for all time. Doesn't have to repeat it over and over and over again. And the reason it doesn't need to be repeated is because Jesus was the perfect sacrificial lamb once for all time. You know, when you think about Jesus and him offering himself as the perfect sacrificial lamb, knowing that he could do something for us that we never could have accomplished on our own, as he was suspended between heaven and earth, the best of what God offered endured the worst that man could throw at him. And here's what I mean by that. Death by crucifixion was a horrific way to die. It was just terrible. It was designed to make death a very long process. 
And history tells us that the Romans who enacted all of this were experts at inflicting pain and being able to do that over a long period of time. Josephus, the Jewish historian, called crucifixion the most pitiful of deaths. And the reason he said that, and the reason that would have made sense to everybody who ever read that by him, was because a crucifixion was designed to absolutely humiliate people. And again, just prolong death in the most painful kind of way. Everything just stripped from them, leaving them hanging there like a piece of meat. You know, Jesus substituting for us. He took our punishment. That should have been us. But because he was the perfect sacrificial lamb, this is what he did for us. You know, often we get to see depictions and pictures of what a crucifixion may have looked like and the movies give us the opportunity sometimes to view that. And sometimes those things are just awful to view. I don't know if they even come close to portraying what that actually may have looked like. I think it was much worse. And I say that based on what we discover in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14. Here is some prophetic words about what would happen to Jesus. And I want to read these from three different versions, just so that we get a picture. The NIV says, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. The message says, Everyone was appalled. He didn't even look human. A ruined face, disfigured past recognition. And the NLT says it this way, Many were amazed when they saw him, beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know he was a human. So who is Jesus? Who is he? And we're trying to figure this out. And he's a person who walked and he said some amazing things. And last week we talked about, what was he more than just a good person? Was he more than an amazing teacher? Yes, he was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. But as we think about him in these descriptions, Jesus is the Redeemer. He's the one who paid my ransom price and your ransom price as well. And he went through a horrific event in order to pull all of that off. And the reason he did that is because he could. He is the once for all perfect sacrifice for our sins. And the mob that was present to view all of that looked at the lower story and saw a common criminal that they thought should be destroyed and killed. But God in his upper story saw this as something that was written before the foundations of the world that Jesus would come and be that perfect once for all sacrifice. That's Jesus. That's who he is. So what about my story? How do we take all of this information and this content and as we think about Jesus and his final days and some of his final statements, how do we use this in our lives? What's my story? Well, I want to give you three thoughts. Number one, Jesus set an example of selflessness that should be followed. I mean, he even said that in John. I have given you an example I want you to go out and I want you to do the same. That's what I'm looking for from my followers. So Jesus set an example of selflessness that should be followed. Maybe today you need to do some washing of feet. 
Maybe today there's a way that you can be the lowest ranking person in every room. And I'm not sure what that looks like for you or what that means. But you're smart and you're intelligent and you're really good looking today. You are. You can figure this out. See, Jesus set an example of selflessness that should be followed. I don't think he expects us to go out and wash feet, but he wants us to do really humble things for others. And so who is it in your world that you would rather not do something humble for that maybe has not been there for you in a time of need or who has sold you out or denied you? These are the people that Jesus would serve in a really humble way. And I think he wants us to do the same without expecting anything in return. So maybe today you need to wash some feet. Maybe that's it. Parents, what about us? We need to wash some feet today. Students in the room. You know, every day you walk into a a building, a school, and uh, there's people there who need to be served. And, and maybe they're hiding and, and keeping it all together and, and looking really good, but yet you're, you're in that hall, you're in that room, you're on that team, you're in that group, so you can wash some feet. What about at work? Who's there that needs you to do something really humble for them that maybe would change a whole environment? I mean, maybe it would really open some things up. And, and Valley Point Church, are, are we selfless enough? I mean, are we? You know, we give things away and we collect and we go out on different Saturdays and we serve. But are we selfless enough? Are we? When you look at the life of Jesus in his final days, he sets this example and pattern of selflessness that is really hard to deny. Because he says, here's what I've done. Now I want you to go out and I want you to do the same. Secondly, evaluate your compassion levels today. Will you do that? And are they functioning or are they broken? When you think about your compassion levels, right now, are they functioning or are they broken? And here's some questions you can throw at that in order to find that answer. What breaks your heart and what makes you cry? What breaks your heart? Can you identify something? And what makes you cry? Is there something there? If there's not, then your compassion levels are probably broken. And the answer to that is time with Jesus. Because again, when you look into his life and when you discover and when you read, it is hard to ignore his selfless activity and how he was so compassionate in his actions toward others. And so if your compassion level is broken, if there's nothing that moves your heart, if there's nothing that makes you cry, if you've become really cold and hard, which does happen to us, then spend some time looking into the life of Jesus and allow his compassion to restore that for you. Thirdly, An appropriate response to Jesus is trust and worship. That's an appropriate response. And I think we have to respond to him. He's the central figure in scripture. I think he is the central figure in all of history. You can try to ignore him, but that's pretty hard to do. 
So an appropriate response to Jesus is to trust and then worship. If you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus alone to save you, if you've never allowed him to redeem you to pay your ransom price, know that today as we continue to respond to the greatness of God, you can cry out to him and in your own words claim his leadership and forgiveness and ask him to lead you and trust in him alone. That's an appropriate response. You can do that here or anywhere. If that's something that has happened for you, then I think an appropriate response is that we worship. We worship him. And that's a word we throw out occasionally. What does that actually mean? Well, worship is responding to the greatness of God. That may be a prayer. It might be a song. It might be silence. It could be any number of things. It's simply responding to his greatness and saying, you are worth it. And so an appropriate response to Jesus, who is he? He's the redeemer. He's the once for all sacrifice for sin. An appropriate response is to trust and worship. Father, we step into your presence now. And we have been on a three-week journey here. Just asking and trying to answer, who is this Jesus? We can try to ignore him, but that's a pretty difficult thing to do. And over these few weeks here, we have thrown out many different descriptors. God, we're using language to do that, and we know it really falls woefully short. But it's all we can do, and it's all we have. And so, in our small, frail ways, we're trying to describe the Messiah, the Son of God, I think the greatest way we can do that is to look into Scripture itself, the historical accounts of the things that Jesus said and did. And God, we've walked through his final days here. And they set such an example for us. Jesus, who knew what was coming, who knew when he was going to die, who knew that he would carry the weight of my sin and our sins and the sins of the world. Someone who didn't deserve to die. But yet he just laid his life out there because he was the perfect sacrificial lamb and he could do this. He came on mission. And so as we have looked at his final days, wow, washing feet, looking out at those who would hurt him deeply, who would deny and betray, and yet giving clarity and trying to comfort them, praying for them, and praying for us and then giving his life nobody took it he gave it and the reason he did this is because he is the redeemer he's the once for all sacrifice for sin so God whatever decisions we need to make right now whether it's to trust in the work of Jesus alone right now and to add nothing to that but just believe that he is the one who came for me or whether it's to worship in new ways and fresh ways with bright eyes so grateful so grateful for your plan before the foundations of the world to rescue me and us God may we be alive to this 
Uh, this isn't just a game. It's not just a nice thing to do on Sunday where we gather and talk a little bit. God, this is real, and it's you giving to us a gift. It's you paying our ransom price. Jesus is the Redeemer. Speak to us now. Challenge us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We'd also love to have you join us on any Sunday morning as well at the Garnet Valley Middle School at 9.15 or 11 a.m.